0: The Guardian. With climate change and the demand for biofuels pushing up the cost of food worldwide, rich countries are increasingly looking for land in developing countries to feed themselves. But is this at the expense of the host country? I'm Madeleine Bunting, and this week's Guardian Focus podcast examines what impact these large scale land deals are having on local communities and if anything can be done to make these agricultural investments work for development. I'll be asking experts these questions shortly, but first let's look at an example of a large international land deal. I recently visited Mali in West Africa, where Libya has leased 100,000 hectares of land in the main rice region. The first stage of the Malibia project is to build a gigantic canal which is causing great concern. We've just driven about 40 kilometres alongside this massive canal and we've come to the end of it where there's a lot of concrete installations and iron sluice gates which can control the flow of water. Behind me there's going to be an airstrip in due course. Uh, This is an area of small villages. Local people are passing by the donkey cart now. Some boys behind me fishing in the water. A woman coming past with a big bowl on her head. These are the villages that are likely to be displaced. Abdullahi of the Farmers Union, what is going to be the impact on the villages here?
1: All of a sudden they saw that, okay, here are the tractors, here are the things to be built. The government said, okay, we are going to build a canal for Libya. The population was concerned. Once this channel will be working, the parceling is to put in place. We are sure that all this population, all these villages that you have seen along the canal are going to be wiped out because they need to parcel the lands and to start the irrigation.
0: On the other side of the canal, people like Georgette Foro have been forced out by the Malibia project. She lost her market gardens, crucial to feed her six children, as well as being her primary source of income. Everyone depends on Georgette since her husband died.
1: I'm really sorry. It's uh, very sad. This garden was a big, huge thing to me, to my family, even to my husband. When I grow this garden and I had a good harvest, I grow potatoes, onions, uh, many kind, many diverse uh, uh, qualities of food. It happens that I can complete. The ingredients the money that my husband gave me to go to the market it's not enough from this money from my garden i can complete it to make food for my family and also the education of my children were relying on this garden because when when the harvest is good enough i can sell make much money and send my children to school
0: the scale of foreign investment here is phenomenal it's not just malibya hundred thousand hectares There's foreign investors who've bought another 600,000 hectares and you can see the, the, the potential of this land to grow huge quantities of rice. The problem is Mali needs that food. Mali needs that land. This land already is being worked by thousands and thousands of farmers and they're at risk of losing their livelihoods.
1: They could have given us money. So, okay, you guys go out. Free this place, we're going to destroy it. But just come and say, okay, go out, we're going to destroy. We don't have anywhere to go. We don't have the money in time. The house has been destroyed before they gave us the money. All the family is depending, having air on me. But I can't do anything now. I don't know what will happen in the future. Only God knows.
0: Yakuba Sanuku is another displaced farmer he was forced to move his wife and children into rented accommodation. Yakuba was one of 58 farmers, out of a total of 150 in the area, to receive compensation. But it's nowhere near enough to find a proper place to live. He is now struggling to find work.
2: He used
1: to have uh, up to three market gardens, okay? The first one was so big that it got uh, up to 50 trees. This land used to belong to his forefathers. He says that it's uh, more than 100 years that uh, they got these lands. So he got no land title and no paper. It was just a traditional way to give them land by the traditional authorities like the chief of village.
0: This is a common problem across Africa. The majority of rural people don't have written papers or formal rights for the land they live and work on. In Mali, land is ultimately owned by the government, who may allocate it to a third party. I spoke to a government spokesperson for the Ministry of Agriculture.
1: Of course, I think it's a good initiative with hundreds thousands of hectares. but you have to understand it is involved in the Malian government policy. If this the help uh, The money that will bring in this uh, initiative, this this Malibia, will help the youth with unemployment to produce huge amount of food for for the whole population. I think on these conditions, it's a good thing.
0: Reaction from the Malibia project. As I mentioned in the package, 600,000 additional hectares of land in Mali have been leased off with South Africa, China and Senegal amongst the foreign investors. Joining me in the studio to discuss these issues is The Guardian's environment editor, John Vidal, director of the International Institute for Environment and Development, Camilla Toulmin, and down the line from Montreal is Devlin Kuyek from Grain, an international NGO that works to support social movements and small-scale farming. We've just heard about local people being displaced in the Malibya project, with suspicions that the rice will be sent to Libya rather than used to feed local communities. This type of investment is often referred to as land grabbing. John, you've witnessed similar programmes elsewhere in Africa. Can you give us a sense of the scale and scope of these projects?
3: I think the first thing to say is that land is fantastically cheap in Africa compared to most other continents. And since 2006 and six seven, since the price of oil went up and food prices spiralled, Uh, there's been a sort of great search by investors to put money into into land. And they've naturally um, fallen on Africa because it is significantly cheaper than anywhere else.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about some of the places you've visited where you've seen it?
3: Yeah, well, I was in uh, southern Ethiopia uh, not long ago. And there it wasn't a sort of vast great takeover of land so much as a uh, a Saudi... uh, company had um, set up one of the largest greenhouses in in africa and was producing vast amounts of tomatoes and food and whatever but all of it was being flown straight out to the uae to saudi arabia or wherever um Nothing wrong with that a big investment, lots of people being employed. Uh, the problem was was that the land had been closed off to uh, to uh, herders and, and, and other people. The water, which is very precious in that area, was being used, so the knock on effects were enormous now, just down the road from there in Gambela province um, uh, there 's massive investment by chinese by uh, Uh, companies from right the way around the world. Um, And there, in these hot spots, you're finding huge takeovers of land and very large um, removals of people as well.
0: Devlin, what what do you think is driving this globally?
2: Well, it emerged with the food crisis in 2008, but also with the financial crisis. And as John was saying, uh, that sort of triggered a a huge wave of uh, investment money pouring into land. Land became... Um, for financial investors, a sort of secondary asset that they could dump money into and that they could uh, expect profits from uh, over the long term. And for certain countries uh, who were at that point seeing that the global food system was no longer looking out for their needs, they couldn't access uh, the food imports that they were used to and that they depended upon. So they started looking for alternatives and the One of the strategies they came up with was to outsource food production. These are countries such as the Gulf countries, uh, China, Japan, Korea, uh, even uh, India, uh, Libya, and the list goes on. But they are interested in acquiring uh, farmland overseas in countries where they can get it for for cheap. These tend to be very poor countries with food security problems already. Uh, And then to set up their farms and to produce for, for export.
0: Right, so Camilla, why would a country want these kinds of foreign investors? What's in it for the host countries?
4: I think what's in it for a number of the host countries is the prospect of um, capital to invest in both uh, equipping the country with things like a new canal. So that's what Libya has promised Mali and has largely achieved through this new canal. So it's partly that kind of physical investment in infrastructure. And secondly is access to particular technology like, for instance, a new sugar refinery, which is what the Ilovo project in Mali is also seeking to offer to the government. That's the explicit element of the deal. Of course, because many of these contracts, if not all, actually carried out um, and negotiated behind closed doors, it's actually very difficult to know what the full terms of the deal are. Where we've found some of the details of deals, what you see is a huge range, but by and large, very little in the way of a payment per hectare, and much more required of the investor in terms of this um, capital investment. That said, given that none of these deals are subject to public scrutiny, Our feeling is that governments could get a much better range of um, conditions if they bargained harder and if they also brought the interests of their local populations into account because they're completely ignored.
0: So what's so attractive for foreign investors? Emergent Asset Management Limited is a London-based venture capital firm and a pioneer investor in African farmland. We asked CEO Susan Payne... Why is land so attractive as an investment?
5: In a continent where we're seeing increased investment in private equity, Um, in fact, the FDI returns, foreign direct investment returns in in Africa in 2007 were the highest in the world. In a continent where we're seeing much more interest for investment full stop, in the last decade, six out of the 10 world's fastest growing economies were in sub-Saharan Africa. And in fact, Angola at um, 11.1% annualized beat China, as a matter of fact, on an an annual basis for growth. So GDP growth is very substantial in many of these countries. So for many reasons, not just because the continent is more secure, not just because there is a large workforce or there is strong growth or there is a diversity of crop range, etc., but simply because as a whole, um, there are many asymmetries about Africa which are currently being dispelled. There are risks, and when you look at any risks in farming, uh, I guess the most substantial risks are, also, are going to be largely climate change and secondly, political. In the case of climate change, how do you mitigate against climate change risk? Um, and you mitigate by Assuming or looking at the vast area that you're farming and you look at the different longitudes and latitudes, you diversify by location, you diversify across microclimates, you diversify across various commodities. But that is your key risk globally in any agricultural industry, uh, particularly now. In looking at political risk, you look at the stability of the government in the countries that you are entering. Um, We have very strong relationships with the governments that we are working with on the ground. We will not enter a country unless we have um, a genuine acceptance and encouragement from the government to be there, and we have um, also effective geopolitical models to assess the various scenarios going forward. But strategic relationships are very important.
0: Susan Payne from Emergent Asset Management Limited. John, from what you've seen, are these land deals depriving subsistence farmers of their land and food?
3: Yes, I mean, as simple as that. It's... um, Government does not recognise the small farmer. I mean, in in many many cases, and so in Ethiopia, for instance, uh, there's supposedly 75 million hectares of land which are. Uh, available for agriculture, of which they say the government says only 15 million hectares is actually being used um, agriculture. They are forgetting that the land, there's no land in Ethiopia which is not being used at all, um, and it's just it's used in different ways, which are not necessarily very quote productive, um, but they're certainly used and, uh, and 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 needed by by local communities, and this is having a direct effect on on many many communities on water, on climate, and all kinds of different things.
0: Okay. Camilla, do these international land deals always represent a threat to the poor or or could they work for local development?
4: By and large, um, they don't work for local development. You've got one or two cases where um, investors have been keen to uh, create much stronger ties with local smallholders, but by and large, they've tended to be large-scale farming operations, uh, often benefiting from significant public subsidy of one sort or another, having access to things like development bank financing, not really wanting to engage with the transaction cost intensive business of um, making connections to often thousands of smallholder farmers in the locality. But I think you have to see this also within the context of the debates that have gone on between different groups around whether or not smallholders got, have got a future. Many people argue that the time of the smallholder, the subsistence farmer, is over and that what we want is large-scale farming. Neglecting to look at reality, which is that smallholder farmers in Africa have often been the most dynamic part of the agricultural sector, but that's kind of ignored in favour of the interests of those people who can offer governments a sense of a more modern form of agriculture, but often at considerable cost.
0: Devlin, what do you what do you think? Are some developing countries managing these investments better than others?
2: Oh, well, I think that uh, they're all kind of struggling with this because it's happening so quickly and it's such a, a rapid pace and such a wide scale. But they, from what we've seen, most have been eagerly embracing it, trying to uh, attract investment, competing with each other for it. Uh, to the neglect of their of their local communities, of the of the farming population. I mean, take the example of Senegal, where the government is pursuing a a deal right in the middle of the most important uh, rice producing uh, zone of its country, where there's uh, hundreds of thousands of people engaged in small scale agriculture, people who would want more access to water, more access to land, and essentially they're they're negotiating with the saudi arabian investors also looking at other investors to take over all of that land and bring in large-scale industrial agriculture which will produce mainly for export and from the deal that we've seen it's seventy uh, percent would be intended for export uh, directly to saudi arabia so there's there's very little in this that can be expected for the local communities and there's well, many problems when it comes to the uh, how it will affect the food security of the country and local population we have to remember also that one of the sparks for this was the food crisis there are a billion people on the planet who don't have enough to eat most of those people are in the countryside most of those people are going hungry because they don't have access to food and water and biodiversity and these deals what they're doing is just taking away more of that access they're going they're transferring uh... access to land and water from the hands of smallholders to the richest people on the planet and they're putting in place uh... industrial agriculture large-scale on plantations for export uh... and taking away the the sustainable agriculture that's being practiced in place for that's that's destined for for local markets so this is only going to make the food crisis worse it's opportunism on a large scale uh... and it's going to serve the the, the uh, the pockets of uh, wealthy investors and uh, countries that uh, could be doing other things to deal with the global food crisis.
0: Olivia de is the United Nations special rapporteur on the right to food. He thinks it is ultimately in the investors' interests to work in a more sustainable way.
6: Well, I think investment is absolutely key in agriculture. It is very important to make up now for almost 30 years of neglect of agriculture as a sector in uh, development cooperation and also because the private sector has not been interested in agriculture there has been simply too little money poured into agriculture but it is not a right approach to rob local communities from their land and to develop large-scale plantations which have huge social and environmental externalities and are not going to promote the type of farming that we need in order to increase the incomes of local communities. So I I do not think that this is the right solution. In most cases, these deals are concluded between host governments which need cash um, and investors who have an interest in speculating on farmland. And neither of these two parties are interested in making the deals more transparent, in having them... um, Regulated in any way by the international community or by uh, local uh, local groups, so it is very uh, difficult to, to to regulate because the um, incentives are are not uh, really right in this in that sense. I believe that what must be clear to the investors is that it is in their long-term interest to do things right uh, because they may suffer severe reputational losses if they do not consult with the local communities, and if they do not ensure that they will not disrupt livelihoods. There are discussions about the adoption of an international code of conduct or a set of guidelines that should guide investors in order to make sure that they act responsibly. I think, however, that until the investors understand that it is in their interest um, to develop much more sustainable types of investment and to work together with the local communities, uh, that these codes of conduct will remain a dead letter.
0: Olivia Deschuter from the UN on the importance of investors working with local communities. Devlin, we heard earlier in the package from Mali that most people don't have any formal legal title to the land they use. Is this the issue at the root of the problem?
2: Well, in Africa um, and in other parts of the world, much of the, the land is held in, through communal systems. And of course, uh, governments don't recognize these communal systems of land ownership in many cases. In, in some cases, they do. Uh, but then they've been able to just uh, override that and claim that the state owns the lands and, and, and they're transferring it to foreign investors on, on that basis. Uh, Some places they're trying to push uh, privatization of land towards a more kind of uh, uh, system of land titling that's more common in the West. But this is also very, uh, has many dangers as well and can lead just as quickly to the loss of land by local communities. Because if you haven't dealt with the the underlying fragilities that's there, uh, investors can come in and use that uh, the, the the titles as a way to uh, to quickly buy up land from local communities. So it's a quite a complex complex issue, but what we're seeing with this uh, with this land grab is that any any sort of form of rights that the communities have are being completely disregarded.
0: Camilla, a question from the talk point on our website comes from the NGO Global Witness. Where lies the best hope of reform? Regulation at an international level. Or is it at the national level, where land rights need to be strengthened and the rule of law? I think that at the international level,
4: it's helpful to have that code of conduct just to set the standard for what people should expect domestically. However, that will be a dead letter unless you've got um, a set of pressures domestically that force governments to open up discussion of these deals. I think we need to be working with a number of governments to show that they're closing off really important future options by making quick deals now. We need to be working with parliaments, farmer organizations, press and media in these countries to help them really put pressure and demand that their governments be more accountable. We need to be working with some of the big agricultural investors to show that as Olivia de Schutter rightly said, in the medium to long term, their investments are severely put in jeopardy by their unwillingness to look at some of the broader, both environmental but social um, damage associated with these, these investments.
0: John, where do you think the new hotspots uh, will will kind of crop up. What, what, where are foreign investors now looking for further expansion?
3: Well, I've just I've just been handed a bit of paper by the Ethiopian government, which trying to sort of put their point of view on this. And they're basically saying look, these investments can work, and it can produce food for home. Countries and for others, it can be a win win situation. But then they go into the, some of the details about the scale of what is going on, not just in Ethiopia, where they have put up 10% of their available agricultural land for outside investment, 10%. But they're saying in Sudan, South Korea has deals covering 700,000 hectares. Uh, In uh, Egypt, 400,000 acres. China has deals with the Republic of Congo to grow palm oil for biofuels which cover 2.8 million hectares. The Saudis have said they want to invest, quote, in hundreds of thousands of hectares. It goes on. I think we're going to see wherever land is available, we are going to see hotspots emerging. And it'll happen very quickly, quite secretly, as Camilla has said, unaccountably. And that's where the problems lie.
0: Well, that's all for this week's Guardian Focus podcast. My thanks to John Vidal, Camilla Toulmin and Devlin Kuyek. I'm Madeline Bunting. The producer was Peter Sale and the researcher was Claire Provost. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.